Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. And joining me for a Texans midweek look and a little Astros talk is my co-host, Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. You can count on our midweek show along with our Texans postgame every week during football season. So hit subscribe on YouTube to get notified. If you don't know us, you're getting 45 years combined in sports journalism between us. 35 years covering Houston sports. So you're in good hands with us. And, Sean, the Texans are not just the worst rushing defense in the NFL. They're giving up over 200 yards per game. 45 more yards. 45 more than the second worst team in the NFL. That is not just bad. That is atrocious. Did the coaches or players have any answers this week out at NRG Stadium? Gap integrity, missed tackles, and, you know, those are things they feel pretty confident about being able to clean up as uh, the season rolls along. Um, they're not happy with it. They're not, they're not satisfied. Uh, they're expecting much better because I think they like where their pass rush has been. I think they like their uh, ability to get to the quarterback through these first three games. Um, they're looking at it, I think, just like, hey, this is a work in progress. and We've got guys bought in, and they believe – um, that they have, you know, the right pieces uh, to improve. Not necessarily to say they have the right pieces to go out and win the whole darn thing. Um, I think that's what a lot of people hear uh, when, when you know, Texan players and coaches talk. But, hey, look, it's, it's been schematically, you know, you're trusting a lot of young guys, a lot of journeymen, a lot of first-year players within this organization. Not everybody is in year two of a Lovey Smith defense. So there's going to be some rust to shake off. There's going to be um, guys in which you're asking uh, quite a lot from, to be honest with you, Robert, relative to what their career says they are already. Um, so I, I think it's fair to just kind of look objectively at that and pump the brakes on, hey, you know, this looks this bad, that looks really horrendous. Well, what were your expectations coming into the season? I think it's a dumb question because we all know what they were. They weren't very high. They weren't very good. I think you should be pleasantly surprised the fact that they've had an opportunity to win three games um, this season. They've played competitive, yes, ugly, but competitive football. Um, that's not good enough for them. Players want to play. Coaches want to coach. And you try to squeeze every ounce of out of your players if you possibly can if you're a coach at any level and I think that's what they're they're going to be able to see Robert here in the next two to three weeks is just how much juice they have left to squeeze out of some of these players big picture you're right you're right but the bottom line is they weren't this bad against the run last year you know this that's the difference and the veteran linebackers aren't the answer and I'm kind of wondering linebacker Garrett Wallow took 22 percent of the Texans defensive snaps in his first game back couple things. Do you think we'll see more Wallow this week? And any word on how soon third-round pick Christian Harris might be ready to return from the hamstring injury? Well, Harris has got to miss, you know, four weeks on IR. They put him on short term before the season started. Lovey Smith was asked about that this week and said, hey, look, anybody that is on IR that is eligible to come off, if we believe they can help us, they're going to help us. And he talked specifically about Christian Harris, the rookie linebacker, and said when he's ready to go, he will definitely get an opportunity. Um, so I think that's somebody that, um, you know, they're really anticipating getting a really good look from if and when he's healthy. 
Um, there's been no reported setback. So following this week four game against the L.A. Chargers, I'm fully anticipating seeing him on a practice field in full um, as they get ready for week five. Um, it is important to note that since day one of training camp, Christian Harris has been locked to the hip of Lovey Smith's son, who is the uh, linebacker coach, Miles Smith. Those two guys have a very good relationship. Miles has talked about it a number of times to this point during the season. Um, said Christian has just been a sponge and he wants to talk ball and just wants to learn. So I think that's great. And if you recall, we actually discussed this briefly, uh, I think a few weeks back um, when Miles Smith made himself available to the media, talked particularly about um, Christian Harris. And it's that he believed that this time, while obviously not, um, you know, favorable due to slow start of his career, but would be favorable to Harris in the long run that he gets a chance to now sit back, observe, watch the film, watch the game unfold on the sideline. And that could in turn help him when he is eligible to play and healthy. Yeah. And you said earlier, one thing is you were talking about the first and second year guys, but I feel like the guys that have been around the football tackling are the first and the second year guys, whether it's Jonathan Owens, who's, you know, getting his first real playing time this year and leading the team in tackles, whether it's Jalen Petrie, now he's got to get better at the actual wrapping up part of tackling. And I know he's been very, uh, he, he's been very open about that. Like he knows that's something he's got to improve. Uh, but those two guys and Derek Stingley in the secondary, they're they're doing their job. It's it's the problem. The problem is the the we, we keep coming back to these journeymen, the journeyman linebackers, and some of the guys on the front line. They they've got to do a better job. I'm not concerned as much about the rookies right now. And, and, you know, the rookies seem to be the answer like Christian Harris, maybe. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they're the answer in particular, but you know, you mentioned guys like Derek Steenley who made a touchdown saving tackle on that 52 yard run this past week against the bears. Um, I think they ended up uh, kicking a field goal or maybe scoring anyway during that drive. I, I, I can't remember. Um, but Stingley has, every time we ask about him, Lovey Smith or miles or, um, whoever it is, talks very highly of him. A lot of players as well. They like what they've seen from him, his maturity. Um, you don't hear the same things about Stingley that you do about Petrie. When you talk about Petrie to players and coaches, the first thing that they tend to say is that this guy's wise beyond his years and plays like it too. Um, Stingley is, you know, under is understanding the game, but we're still seeing, you know, some missteps here and there. And quite honestly, I'm going to chuck it up to look, he's a rookie first year in the league. They're going to test him, and you're not going to pitch a perfect ball game. It's not going to be great. Sometimes you can blame it on the scheme and things like that. Um, I think schematically it, it, it's, it's not been the problem in terms of the run defense. I mean, I'm going back and I'm looking at some of the film of the All-22 in that Bears game particularly. Jerry Hughes, who we laud so much for being such an enforcer and a disruptor in the pass rush, looked completely lost. And the running back ran right by him. And he had no idea where the football was. And as an edge rusher, when and he, the reason why he didn't think the ball was near him is there was two fakes on the play and he bit on the first one. So he thought it was a run backside. Well, if it's a run backside, you have one job as an edge rusher on the weak side, and that is to squeeze and not commit beyond the line of scrimmage until the ball does. And it's it's a rookie mistake that a 13-year veteran just quite simply made. And 
you know, you can obsess over plays like that, but those are just a sample size of what's going on within that entire front seven or eight, if you will, as the Texans have had quite often eight guys in the box. Yeah, Jonathan Grenard, you talk about first and second year guys. He's somebody that's now in his third year, and I want to see him involved a little bit more in the run game as well. And just a reminder for everybody out there, we need you to subscribe, like, and comment on YouTube. It's a great way to support the show. Also, reach out to us. If you want to sponsor the show, we're looking for sponsors. We would love to hear from you. Just reach out to me or Sean. You can find us on Twitter, all of our social media. Uh, real easy to do. And Sean, I'm no less frustrated about the running back situation than I am about the linebackers because Rex Burkhead is a terrible number two option. He's a very situational third down back at best with no juice in his game. This comes down to Casario, I think, and him not bringing in a trustworthy number two running back, or at least a trustworthy number two running back for this coaching staff that maybe can break a tackle or who has a little bit of explosion. And this is not a position that's tough to find these days in the NFL. Those guys are out there and it's just confusing to me why we haven't seen that. I saw he was working out a couple of guys today, but I I, I would have liked to see him working out guys and bringing guys in and, and, and giving those coaches some options other than Rex Burke. There just seems to be a love affair with the guy that none of us can figure out other than he's really smart and blocking as a running back. And that's just not good enough. I mean, it's not, I mean, for, for, from a performance base, right. And if you're looking for production, you know, uh, and you look across the league, um, I'm not going to say there's a great one, two punch across the league, but you have serviceable, serviceable guys, but most importantly, you know, your number two running backs really across the league in large part are guys that have been around in the league far fewer years than that of Rex Burkhead. And if you're anticipating getting big play potential out of Rex Burkhead, let me share a bit of information with you. He has nine plays of 15 yards or more over the course of his 10-year career. 10 years, nine plays. <laughs> Stop it right now with the analytics telling me that if you put Rex Burkhead in the position to uh, you know, break a play open, that that's going to happen this year. Maybe once in 17 games, so, yes, it's it's largely inexcusable, but what's maybe more of an indictment is the fact that not one other running back, and they had Royce Freeman and Dari Ogumbawale um, and a couple others in training camp and during the preseason that apparently couldn't beat him out from a talent level to, if you will, uh, supersede the fact that, and I do believe this, he has been a very, very good person to learn from. Uh, for Damian Pierce. Okay. And I think to some degree that can be overvalued because you do have veteran coaches in that locker room and on the sideline as well, that Pierce could get the same sort of tutelage from. It's a little bit different when you have a guy in the backfield with you every day and somebody to, you know, chew it up with on the sideline. So I, I do understand it to some degree. But, but Chad, I think there's not going to be a bunch of teams out there knocking at Rex Burkhead's door. If you want him to coach Damian Pierce, there's coaching jobs. That's what they're for. And that that's fair. That's fair. It, it, it's just... It, it does add a little bit of comfort knowing that, you know, somebody else is putting the helmet on and the shoulder pads on like you that's done it for a long time that's uh, talking to you and that's still doing it. And to be quite honest with you, look, I mean, Rex Burkhead, I really do think could be serviceable used in in spurts, okay? But his usage, which has, in all fairness, 
declined since that first game, with the exception of him being exclusively featured in that final drive this past weekend against the Chicago Bears, in which he was the target for Mills's second and final interception to effectively end the game for the Texans. That part is inexcusable to me. Here's what I think is funny. I talked to a number of people this week at Texans, uh, other reporters, um, and they're kind of in disagreement with me and, and, you know, relative to Pierce not being on the field on that final Texans possession against the Bears. And I, I was really shocked by that because I understand the importance of taking care of the football at all levels, at any position. And I know Pierce put it on the ground twice. But if you're going to tell me that you have an opportunity to win a game, but because you're going to teach a guy a lesson, or maybe you don't trust him to hold on to the ball because of his maybe over-aggressive nature of play, you're not going to have your best player on the field when, when the game is on the line in your most important and biggest moment. I'll just never buy into that. If it's egregious, certainly I can get behind that. But for a young guy who has seemingly done everything in his power since day one to learn the system, to get better, to ask coaches what he can do, if you, low, if you ask any coach in the NFL, Robert, the one thing that they want from any player at any position, it's a guy that eats, breathes, and sleeps football and it wants to succeed it no matter what, that's Damian Pierce. And I'll add this on because I believe that if you're going to take him out in the fourth quarter, then take out Davis Mills in the fourth quarter, who's failed his first two games as a Texan in the fourth quarter. If we're going to do that, if you're going to say, all right, you know, you made a mistake, so you don't deserve to be in the game, then Davis Mills should be right there. You, you've got, a, vet, you've got a, a, a real crappy veteran like Rex Burkhead sitting behind Davis Mills. And you can tell me, well, that's a quarterback. It's a different situation. But it's no different in that neither guy behind Davis Mills or Damian Pierce is any good. And your best chance to win is Davis Mills and Damian Pierce. I mean, it's a fair point, and I understand the passion behind it. And uh, to a certain degree, Robert, I do feel the same way. But at the end of the day, only thing we can do as reporters and fans and people that observe and talk and discuss with passion these sort of things is learn from what we've already been told. And, you know, don't ignore the pulse that you should have by now. You go back four, five, six weeks ago, whatever it was, when Lovey Smith initially named his team captains, the very first thing that he said before he mentioned one name um, that were going to be his team captains this year was, hey, you know, when a team captain is not a middle linebacker or a quarterback, you usually have some problems. And that's not one thing that Lovey Smith wants to have to address in his first year as a head coach after seven years of not having that opportunity in the NFL. And you could, there's a lot of different storylines you could go with there, but no coach wants to have to deal with that. That's just what kind of goes um, with the, with, with, with the game. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you're never not going to see that. So that's interesting to me basically because it's a mindset that every coach, every football player, just the game has in it. And you're not going to make a decision like that and yank your starting quarterback because he's failed in the first two games or he's failed in the first three games. I do think that if we're being realistic here, the next two or three weeks, Robert, are huge for Davis Mills and this Texans offense before it gets really hot for Lovey Smith, before it gets really hot 
for Pep Hamilton. And I don't mean hot in terms of being fired, but I mean being hot in terms of having to answer some really difficult questions and make some very difficult decisions. One thing that might help the Texans and Davis Mills is if they stopped dropping passes. They have seven in three weeks, which is near the top of the NFL. And Sean, I praised Nick Casario. Well, I think a lot of people praised Nick Casario for the two drafts so far. His draft prior to last season, though, while this year's draft looks great with Stingley, Pierce, Petrie, and Kenyon Green looking fantastic and all kinds of potential with those four guys, last year's draft, let's go back to it, not looking so hot. Davis Mills, Nico Collins, Garrett Wallow. Uh, maybe we're going to find out a little bit more about him pretty soon, but Roy Lopez, Brevin Jordan have given next to no good production this year so far. N no good production, and it's still earlier in their careers. I get it. This is only year two, early year two, but you'd hope at least one of them would have flashed a little bit this year. Yeah, and I'll start from the end. You know, Brevin Jordan, I just think, has been flat out outplayed. Um, you know, by the other tight ends on this team. And look, he's dealing with injury right now, missed this last game against the Bears. But I noticed something pretty early on in the preseason. I did not like his ability to catch and run through contact. I just don't think he's, he showed that he was a strong enough player there. And for a quarterback like Davis Mills, who, you know, at times, Robert, you have to give him credit, you know, does show that he can make a big-time throw. But he tries to force so many balls into some tough spots sometimes so that you need a guy that's going to be able to come up with those balls and muscle through the contact and hold on to the ball. And I don't think that Brevin Jordan has really shown that he can do that yet. You know, fortunately, you know, they had an opportunity to snatch up O.J. Howard, who I think should be regularly featured in this offense. I think he's a very complete player. His career has shown as much. Um, he's just not taking that next step and, you know, into an elite status, not saying that he ever will, but I certainly think that what he's done in the previous four or five years of his career, which has been a more than serviceable tight end, um, can be just as much for the Texans going forward. And I like Jordan Akins. I always thought that he could have been a really good fit here. You know, when he was with Jordan Thomas a couple of years ago uh, as a Texan, I, I, part of me just never felt like he got a fair shake. Maybe sometimes a second opportunity for an organization, you know, is just that caught a touchdown pass and what was probably Davis's most best throw of the entire season to that point, uh, a ball where only he could get it. That's the kind of ball that we want Nico Collins um, to be getting. And unfortunately, Nico and Mills have to be tied at the hip to some degree. You can talk about, is it Pep Hamilton's play calling? Is it the scheme, the concept, whatever? At the end of the day, you know, one of your drafted players has to throw it to the other guy, okay? And is it a problem of Nico getting open? Well, I tell you this, it certainly wasn't on that last play when Mills targeted Rex Burkhead instead of throwing a little left shoulder pump fake towards Burkhead's way. He would have hit Collins up the seam, and who knows how long that would have gone for, at least a 20, 25-yard gain. So those are the things that Mills and Pep Hamilton and this Texans team have to really take a hard look at. And I think we always talk about three years, you know, waiting – three years before we give a final judgment on who a guy is going to be. Sometimes you see early on who that guy is or who that guy is not going to be. I still think if there's one or two guys that you can hold out hope for, it is a guy like Roy Lopez, who is a big, uh, you know, potential uh, guy that can be a potential disruptor is what I'm trying to say. And I'd still hold out a little bit of hope on Nico Collins because that guy really does work hard. And I, I, I think he wants it. 
I, I think he has to want it and truly believe that he can get everything he possibly can out of Davis Mills. I asked a couple of players today, do you feel like after these first three games of losing in the fashion that you did, now is the time where you have to really rally around a quarterback because questions are being asked, people are talking, and there was a resounding absolutely yes, we have to, and you're right about that. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. They have the pulse of the fans, the media, of what we're seeing and watching on our television screens, and they know what they have to do. I think the next couple of three weeks is going to tell us a lot about this team. All right, before I move to the Astros from the Texans, just a reminder to look for my conversation with Chargers insider Ryan Darrud, who hosts the LA Football Show with the Believe Network. That's going to be coming out in the next 24 hours. And Sean, let's move to the Astros because they actually are going to be playing postseason. And we know the Texans likely are not going to be playing postseason baseball or football. And, and, and the Astros are going to be playing postseason baseball and just two series left in the season. That's it. The Rays and Phillies. And Sean, the Rays likely play the Blue Jays for the right to play the Astros. The Blue Jays are 4-2 and two against the Astros this year. It was early in the season, and there was a lot of guys struggling on offense. But uh, they do have postseason poster boy George Springer on the Blue Jays, who knows a little bit of something about hitting in October, so we know that. And, and they have played well against the Astros overall the last couple of seasons. They have. I mean, that's been a team that has just been right there on the cusp over the last handful of years, right, of just trying to break through. But, you know, those dang Red Sox and Yankees, they clog up the AL East. <laughs> it's a really tough get to find your way into the postseason. They've got the talent, man, you know, top to bottom. I mean, if you look at them versus a Yankee lineup against the Astro lineup, um, I think, you know, You'd flip a coin a lot of the times, to be quite honest with you, if you're talking about just true, good, raw talent. But quite similarly to a team that was trying to break through and maybe did so a year early, the 2017 Houston Astros. That was a team that was riddled with a lot of postseason inexperience and guys that you knew could do the job, but you just had to see them in the moment. And then look what we've seen. We've seen, you know... Carlos Correa, who's come and gone and was legendary for the Astros in the postseason. George Springer, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Jordan Alvarez. You know, this could be his real great year if he can stay healthy in the postseason because he looks like when he's dialed in at the plate like he is over the course of the last 14, 15 ball games he's played in, Robert. I mean, it is He's getting back to approaching that Barry Bonds level of fear that pitchers have when he steps into that box. And I think that is a huge X factor. So, uh, look, the Blue Jays have always been a team that has scared me. Um, I respect the talent they have from one through nine. They're pitching. Um, I would not stack it up against that of the Houston Astros. I think that is the one thing that the Astros can hold over the heads of basically any team in either league. Um, and maybe there's a little bit of bias there, but we've seen this team pitch in, in all the scenarios, close ball games, blowout ball games, tight spots, moving Hunter Brown from starter to the pen and doing similar things with Jose Arquiti and Luis Garcia and the piggyback and Justin Verlander, man, he's right. Lance McCullers, hopefully he's uh, healthy and gets over this little illness that he's dealing with. I, I like the Astros going up against anybody if they're the Rays, the Jays, the Yanks, whoever it is. You, you side-eye everybody else a little bit, but you got to feel pretty darn good about the Strohs. 
I sure hope that Biggio uh, postseason thing runs in the family. Let's say uh, I'm, I'm looking at you, Kevin Biggio, and uh, as you I and I are recording this, uh, oh, say that I, I missed it. Say that again. I, I just I hope not. Okay, like when you when you say postseason Biggio, I have like these horrible like flashbacks of 1994 Kevin Brown Padres swinging at sliders three feet out the plate in the dirt. And I'm just, I'm just saying against us, he can do whatever he wants to against everybody else, but I'm an Astros fan. I'm sorry, Craig, you're going to have to deal with that. Um, speaking of Astros second baseman, as you and I are recording this Altuve's OPS is fifth in all of baseball fifth. He's hovering around 900 in OPS and 300 and batting average. If he hits over 300, Sean, it'll be the first time since 2018 it's so easy just to take him for granted, and I do that sometimes, and I feel bad about it. But it's just like I don't even – I don't blink when he, you know, has – oh, it's another leadoff home run for Altuve, and he's going to get another 30 home runs, and he's our second baseman, and he's just awesome. And, but whatever. You know, what about everybody else? What's wrong with everybody else? What, what am I worried about with all the other players? But you're not worried about Altuve. He's mesmerizing, right? And I, I haven't been able to figure him out this year, like – Outside of just one of two things, one, he either changed his philosophy and strategy or uh, he just flat out said to hell with it. Because I could have sworn unless I was like trapped in the twilight zone or something that in spring training, he said he was really going to um, not try to hit home runs, you know, and really try to put the ball in play more um, and, and stuff like that. My God, look at the home run total. You talking about OPS. I mean, the guy's just blasting the ball out of the ballpark still um, like he always has. And look, he had a really slow start to the season, um, you know, was able to put things together. Maybe he did make that change and maybe that was, that's already been acknowledged. If it had, I certainly haven't heard it, but I, I always respect a guy and look, Jose Altuve could not play another game of baseball for the rest of his career. The guy's a hall of famer in my book. There's no doubt about it. Um, you trust the guy's instincts and his wisdom that he's accumulated over the years. He's just a ball player and a smart one at that. I always respect guys that, you know, go back to what was working, you know, like say to themselves, like, Hey, let's not get too crazy. We don't need to change too many things, you know, philosophically, you know, um, maybe a little tweak here and there with an elbow or am I up in the box, back in the box, you know, things like that. Fine. Don't change your swing. Don't change who you are and what got you uh, to the big leagues. And I, I think Altuve um, you know, doing that this year has has really stayed true to himself and been exactly what this Astros ball club needed him and needs him to be going forward. I just wonder, with as hot as he's been on this current stretch, you know, I think it's something like over the course of the last 13, 14, 15 ball games, um, Altuve is just absolutely killing, like hitting 330, 340-something, and the numbers are just great, great across the board. I just worry sometimes about guys hitting that peak, you know, right before the postseason starts when things really get amplified. I know he's got experience. And- well, the, the concern with the whole Astro team is they could freeze this entire team out with this long, you know, we've got several days now. Like, I think, I don't know if it's five or six days or seven days or something like that between the end of the season because they're not playing the one game wild card anymore. So, I mean, you worry about with the, the pitchers staying in rhythm the hitters staying in rhythm and and all of those things. So maybe a guy that's cold right now, you go, well, maybe this is going to help that guy or whatever. But the pitching staff, obviously, 
uh, we, we don't have anybody that's all that cold. So I, I worry about them. Yeah. And you know, uh, what might be interesting, um, it might be a, a better point if, in fact, there was some historical, um, you know, numbers to back it up. But what I think is interesting, the way that Dusty Baker and the Astros have handled the, the starting rotation this year in particular. Um, and look, some of it's kind of been built in. Unfortunately, you had to deal with various injuries with uh, Justin Verlander, Lance McCullers, and, um, you know, uh, figuring out if you're going to give Verlander five, six, at sometimes seven days rest, you know, during the season. I think the the kind of spontaneous flow of how Dusty's handled this rotation kind of sets up pretty nicely for what you have to generally deal with if you're going to make a postseason run and trying to figure a way to get your best guys, your most effective and efficient guys on the mound the most. Um, there's not this road you know routine of like all right it's this guy every fifth day the astros in large part have and you know knock on wood think they're lucky stars have not had to deal with a lot of injury um in their starting rotation this year which has been an absolute blessing and in fact they've been able to load up on some young talent and been pleasantly surprised by the emergence of christian javier and i know a lot of people think that he was, thought that he was going to do exactly what he's doing this season if given a chance. And, hey, fantastic. But, man, the guy's electric and has shown he has some of the best stuff on staff and maybe the best at times uh, against anybody. I, I like the way that it sets up there. I like the fact that Dusty's tinkered with the rotation a number of times this season. So I'm looking forward to that alone um, being a plus sign for the Astros in the playoffs. Yeah, you talk about pitching injuries and not having any of those. Well, every time I look up from baseball reference and I'm looking up uh, something great about Jordan Alvarez, I, I look up and there he is tweaking a different injury. It's a, you know, I mean, a, Tuesday he hurts himself just leaving the box after a base hit. I mean, how does that happen? He's just, you know, trying to run out of the box and he hurts his knee or whatever. He's almost the hitting version of Lance McCullers. I, I worry about him every single game. It's like I'm I'm like, oh, yeah, I hope he does well. But, man, just stay on the field this game. You know, don't make Dusty take you out in the third inning because, you you know, you hurt a hand or a knee or a wrist or whatever. He's like the your favorite golf club in your bag, you know, that you just don't want to scratch up. You know, you know you're stuck in a bunker next to a little bit of gravel and you love your sand wedge to death. You know, you get that matte black finish on it or whatever it is, but you don't, you're not going to use it in that situation because you're going to scratch it up, even though that's the best club possible. And I almost feel like that's the case with Jordan Alvarez. You know, he's the most dangerous hitter, you know, that this team has. And, you know, a top three most dangerous hitter in all of baseball when guys are going right. And I, I look, I said a couple of times this season, he's approached that Barry Bonds level of fear the pitchers have when he steps in the box. And I truly believe that and the numbers back it up um, just what he was doing to baseballs back in June and July, the numbers are just absurd. Um, and he's capable of that at any time. The question for me is, is if you're the Astros going into the postseason, and we kind of touched on this a few weeks back discussing the Diaz over a Trey Mancini, but would you consider just, because I know what those guys give and don't give you necessarily in left field and depending on the ballpark, whether you're playing home or away, what that is, what it looks like. But would you consider just making your Don just flat out full-time DH no matter what 
in, in situations that present itself, maybe flipping them into left field in a late game switch or something like that, but in no way, shape or form, you know, rolling the dice to the effect that this guy is playing left field every day in the postseason. But he doesn't get hurt when he's playing in the outfield. He gets hurt when he's at the plate. That's the problem. I, I understand that. I understand that. But I don't know if, and look, they won't tell you this is one of those things that we may never know or hear about three, four months, you know, after the playoffs are done or whatever. But is it is it just kind of that wear and tear on a guy's body? And then that's where we see it occur is in the plate. Whereas if he was just fresh and all he had to do was just bat and run the bases, um, is that a better situation? Are you limiting the But sometimes when you're running the bases and that's all you're doing, you're not working those muscles. I think when you're out in left field, you know, it's like it's like your car when it's in the garage all day and then you try to start it in cold weather. It's like, well, you haven't warmed me up, so it's going to take me. It's like, you know, and and so, you know, he's he's kind of like that guy that maybe you just need to get him out in the outfield. And so he's running around so he doesn't hurt his knee because his knee has been sitting in the, in the in his, on his butt in the dugout all the time. That's that's a fantastic point and, and an arguable one. And the fact that I even brought up what I did is uncharacteristic of me. But it's it's my level of – I want another World Series for this city. And if, you know, doing everything in your power that the Astros can to keep him healthy brings you that with guys like Trey Mancini, you know, who brings a solid bat. I know he hasn't swung it as a Houston Astro, but I think it's uh, proven over the last five, six years of him just being a ball player. Um, the fact that he's going to get more reps this season than he ever has before uh, playing with the Orioles, who when's the last time they played in the postseason, actually? Well, Mancini would be my choice right now. I would be playing Aledmus Diaz over Mancini, and Aledmus Diaz would be playing left field, who also is a glass vase and gets hurt every time you turn. Oh, my God, is Aledmus Diaz hurt again? Like for the 14th, you know, straight month as an Astro, he's got some sort of nick or, you know, I don't know. That's fair. That's fair, but he's a reserve. You know, he is a guy that you have on the shelf, and he's not your most feared hitter. You know what I'm saying? He is not the game changer that Jordan Alvarez can absolutely be. And, you know, I'm just thinking of ways to optimize that over the course of the next, you know, month and a half. Yeah, I'm just saying I would pick, you know, you talked about Mancini. I, I'm just telling you right now, to be honest with you, I would take Ledmus over Mancini just because. Of fair. His, yes, his, I would, too. You know, that's the guy I would play. And I think it's going to be between those two guys. You know, one of them is going to play, whether it's as a DH or in left field, depending on what they want to do with Jordan. One of those two guys is going to play and. You know, Yuli's back to hitting again. So, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I just can't wait for the playoffs. Um, hopefully the Texans can actually get a win this week. They, they've got a shot because the Chargers are kind of struggling a little bit. They're not, you know, the, the Chargers, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it when we preview them with um, the Chargers insider about, you know, the Chargers aren't running the football at all. And that's the one thing the Texans kryptonite is. So maybe, you know, that's a possibility, but um, it's, it should be fun. You got the Texans on Sunday, the Rockets preseason starts, um, and the Astros are going to be in the playoffs in, a, in a, just a week or so. So it's all coming 
uh, around, and it's going to be an exciting time in Houston sports. I also want to remind everybody, you got to listen to my interview with Barry Warner. I mean, Sean worked with Barry. He knows the guy's full of stories. We talk about Earl Campbell and Muhammad Ali and Nolan Ryan and, you know, partying and, you know, drinking and carousing with Joe Namath and all. It's just, I mean, it's just one thing after another. So go check that out. Um, we're going to do the post game also, as usual, on Sunday. Um, we're thinking about doing a Twitter spaces. So we'll keep you informed through Twitter. Keep an eye out of that if you're a Twitter follower. Um, we might have to do a little bit of live thing after the, the game is over with. Um, on specifically home game or specifically road games, but might do a little something at home as well. So keep a definite eye on that. Always good to catch up with you, Sean. Let's do it again in a few days, man. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.